welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. This movie won 10 Academy Awards. And even though it was made and released 50 years ago, it's still listed on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes as the scariest movie of all time. It's The Exorcist. <laughs> it spawned a whole genre, really opened up um, horror film genre for the next 50 years, but it's still, it's the godfather of all horror movies. Based on this one premise that has now been, um, you know, taken through in many other horror films, this idea of someone being possessed by a spirit, a spirit that comes into them through no choice of their own or in some way that begins to mess with their mind and their uh, emotions and their actions and does make Major damage to other people and themselves. Now, 50 years ago, um, if you were a person of faith or in a church or whatever, likely the idea was like, oh, that's a bad movie or, you know, that's blasphemous. Just don't see it. Um, Christians would have been sort of, in a sense, dismissive of it that way. And the average person, whether they had faith or not, would have been like, oh, it's entertainment, but that's not really real life. Charles Taylor, who is a philosopher and professor emeritus at McGill, probably one of the most brilliant Canadian minds of the 21st century, um, in his book, A Secular Age, um, and he's quite brilliant. I didn't even read the book. I had to read Charles Taylor for dummies, just so you know. Uh, there's a James K. Smith wrote a, a shorter version of the book. But basically, Charles Taylor says that in the past, coming out of the Enlightenment movement and uh, the scientific revolution into what he would call modernity, or philosophers, uh, sociologists call modernity, people opted for what he called a disenchanted existence. Um, and not thinking like enchantment, like fairies and spells, but really a non-spiritual or a world without acknowledgement of spirits. So that people who would have seen The Exorcist back then or whatever would have just been sort of dismissive of it or ignorant of it. And in a sense... Along with that dismissal or it living in a disenchanted world, in a world without spirits where only what you can taste and touch and see and reason and logic reign, that along with the spiritual world that the Holy Spirit or the old school name, the Holy Ghost, was also dismissed or ignored or thrown out. And we talked about this last week, actually, that many of us came from uh, Christian traditions where um, either because of confusion or suspicion or just sort of ignorance of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit had sort of a strange place or a non-place in our Christian tradition. Some of us, I pointed out, said that we came from traditions where nobody said this, but really what we would have concluded the Holy Trinity was, was Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Like nobody said it that way, but essentially we talked about the Father and God the Father and Creator and Jesus the Son and the Bible. And we would have heard sermons on how important the Bible was, that the Bible was holy, that the Bible was the Word of God, that the Bible was the thing we built our life on. And of course, the Bible is incredibly important to Christian faith, but essentially we probably never heard any sermons on the Holy Spirit. Or perhaps he was mentioned in prayer, but no one ever really taught about it. We understood the Bible, but the Holy Spirit, we don't really know what that is or who that is. Some of us might have come from traditions where we crossed ourselves, right? Even saying, or perhaps mumbling under our breath or saying out loud, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But it was all kind of one thing that we did, and we're sort of like, Father, Son, understand, Holy Spirit, not sure what that is, but if there is a Spirit, I'm glad he's on our team, <laughs> right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I don't know what that is, but that's what that is. 
Others of us maybe came from traditions, perhaps Pentecostal traditions or whatever, where people talked about the Spirit, even spoke about the Spirit, even sung about the Spirit, but it was kind of like a, hey, can you feel it? And you just wait till you get the feeling and you got it, and then it's gone, or then you move on, and that's really the sum total of the Holy Spirit. And then perhaps some of you that didn't grow up in church, or even if you did, it was kind of on the periphery, and you're like, whatever the Holy Ghost is or the Holy Spirit, I don't want that inside of me. That sounds like possession. That sounds scary. And so we've kind of dismissed it. Um, which is uh, actually why we're in this series right now talking about the Holy Spirit. And Charles Taylor makes the interesting point that now in post-modernity, people have actually become interested in spirituality again, and in a sense, the world is becoming re-enchanted. Um, that people are very interested. There's this growing, if you do research, um, research that the Barner Group has done uh, about religion and faith in Canada and in, in North America, that there's this growing um, population of people who would call themselves um, spiritual but not religious. Like, I'm not really interested in my religious background or some other religion, but I'm spiritual. I'm interested in spirituality, that any spirit is a good spirit. And certainly the growing interest in yoga and Eastern meditation, all of that is part of this world that Taylor would say is being re-enchanted. And yet, in many respects, the church and faith is still behind. We are still living primarily in the world of reason. Many of us came from traditions and that's still, and so we don't really talk about the spirit world, any spirits, or certainly the Holy Spirit for that matter. And here's why this matters so much. Regardless of your faith background, regardless of what religious tradition you might have pegged yourself in or what you think about spirits and spirituality, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to do something that every one of us wants, regardless of your background. Regardless of what religion you came from, whether you're a person of faith, whether you're a follower of Jesus, you're exploring, or you're new to faith, or you're new today, regardless of that, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to do what every single one of us wants, is to help us become a new person. To help us truly become a new person. The person that our spouse, or our friends, or our parents, or our colleagues, and our coworkers really want us to be and need us to be. <laughs> The person deep down we also want us to be, the person we dreamed we might be, the person God created us to be. And so we started this series last week called Inspired or Inspirited, talking about the fact that this is the purpose of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to help us to become a new person from the inside out. And if you missed it last week, or just as a reminder, we talked about how this seems like, sounds like a strange thing, but this is actually about the spirit of Jesus coming to live inside of us. That there was these few people who lived 2,000 years ago who got to meet and interact with and know Jesus in the flesh, when he was there in the flesh. But none of us here were alive then. We didn't get that. We get the opportunity to know and interact with and relate to and hear Jesus from the inside, from his spirit who comes to live in us and begins to make us new people from the inside out. We are inspirited, inspired by the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Is that weird? I mean, it sounds kind of weird, especially if we think about spirits like the exorcist, where a spirit that comes in and possesses us. But Christian spirituality and the writers of the Bible um, don't have the exorcist in mind when they're thinking and describing the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the movie that would probably more uh, likely describe how the Holy Spirit works is a movie you probably never heard of, uh, or if you haven't, you should. It's called When a Man Loves a Woman. You should look it up. It's, it's a fantastic movie. It's a, it's a heavy movie. And it's about this couple who's happily married, 
but one of them starts to have a growing addiction to alcohol. And that alcohol begins to take over her life and her relationships at work and her ability to parent and her marriage. And it's all about how her husband tries to love her through that. And you're like, BJ, that's so depressing. How has that anything to do with becoming a new person? Why don't I want to do this? Because here's why I say that. When someone is increasingly um, you know, taken over by alcohol, we don't say, oh, they're possessed by alcohol. What do we say? They're under the influence. Under the influence. Influence is what best describes the work of the Holy Spirit. Not possession, where the Spirit comes in and starts making us move and think, and we have no control over it, and all of a sudden it just takes our... I mean, that would maybe be nice, sort of, I guess, but maybe it's kind of scary too, but that's not what it actually is. The work of the Spirit in our lives is one of increasing influence, progressive growing influence and change from the inside out so that it begins to affect every area of our lives. Now, whether or not you knew that, understood that, or even would say today, well, I want that or I don't want that, here's what you need to understand, and here's the key to this. Every one of us is under the influence of something or someone. Whether you are spiritual or not, whether you're a person of faith or not, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, every one of us is under the influence of something or someone. And I want you to listen to how um, the Apostle Paul, one of the sort of the earliest followers of Jesus who went everywhere all over Central Asia um, and Europe talking about Jesus, how he describes the work of the Spirit in our lives to people who were trying to wrestle with this whole idea of how the Spirit works. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now this passage begins with something that we would be really excited to hear. Look at what verse 13 says. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Yes, freedom. Freedom is what we want in our faith, in our life, and everything. And certainly for a 21st century Westerner is freedom. I mean, that is what our continent was built on. That is what we are all about, personal freedom. <laughs> but as he goes on to explain, one of the things you will find is that one thing we are not free from, that no one is free from, is influence. And actually, in this short passage, which is connected to a broader letter about this whole topic of freedom and influence, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul names three different things that we have the freedom to choose to be under the influence of. We don't get to free the freedom to choose whether we will be influenced. <laughs> we just get the freedom to choose which or what or who will influence us. And he names three different influences that we have the freedom to choose. Which of these is going to influence my life? Which of these is going to progressively take over my life from the inside out? And he mentions three things, and we're going to talk through each of them. The law, the self, or which he uses the word the flesh, 
and the Holy Spirit. The law, the flesh, and the Spirit. He first begins with the law, and it's mentioned a couple times, but here we see it in verse 14. He says, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Now, these words law and command, certainly for his Jewish listeners, would have brought to mind, and the broader context of the letter is about the law of Moses, which included the Ten Commandments, um, and all of the things, the law was in a sense, all of the things that they were meant to do and observe or not do in order to be righteous, in order to be considered righteous and accepted by God. That's what the law, it was their religious moral code. It was the way, in a sense, that if you were to answer the question, well, how do you become a new person? Uh, the Jewish people, and in fact, many religions, all religions would say in some way, you follow the law. That's how you do it. The law is what you do or follow or not do in order to become this new person. But as Paul kind of begins to point out here and in the broader context of the letter, and not just the Apostle Paul, but in fact, all of the writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself point this out, that this idea of a moral code uh, and the religious law, and not just the law itself, but the law keepers and the law enforcers, pastors, priests, and the institutions that represent this law. And he says, at best, the law is a limited influence. In other words, the law kind of sits outside of us, you know, whether it's written down and Israel was written down on Ten Commandments or it's written down in the Torah or written down in the Bible or represented by, by institutions and pastors and priests or whatever on the outside of us. But it, it is limited in its influence. It cannot quite get to the heart, right? The law can tell you do not commit adultery or do not covet your neighbor's wife. But it can't stop you from looking at her a little bit longer than you should and thinking thoughts about her that you shouldn't think. The law can tell you to do, we can't change your heart. The law can tell you to be generous and you could write some checks and try to give some money away, but it can't stop you from primarily thinking about your money as yours and scheming and stressing about how you can get more, <laughs> right? The law can only do so much. It can regulate, moderate, modify, enforce behavior. It cannot touch the heart. And this is, you'll see in the broader context of this letter, but all the way through the New Testament, this was the problem with the influence of the law. It's limited at best, and at worst, it's destructive. It can actually produce something not good. It can actually turn you into someone you're not meant to be. It can produce, and often does, self-righteousness, judgmental attitudes, pride, um, control, even injustice. We know actually the law keepers and the law enforcers in Jesus' time and even in the scripture, often God and Jesus himself accuse them of using the law to serve their own advantages and ultimately perpetuating injustice. Um, it, it's it's the, the, basically to say what you become under the influence of the law is self-righteous. The law is limited in its ability to really affect your heart and any way that it does, if you live primarily under the influence of what you should and shouldn't do and the law and the moral code and the religious institution, it will produce or you become self-righteous for better, in, like in, in, in bad ways in both sides of the equation. It can produce the self-righteousness in you, which is what we think self-righteousness is, is pride and judgmental attitudes towards others, looking down on others who don't keep the law and being heavy-handed and uncompassionate and unforgiving with those who fall short. Or perhaps we feel full of shame and guilt and we're uncompassionate with ourselves when we fall short. Either way, it's a self-righteousness. That's the influence of the law. 
And so that's one influence you can be under, but ultimately it's limited in its ability to change you. And the impact it does have is most often destructive, makes us self-righteous. And so Paul says in verse 18, hey, you're not under the law, which we go, yay, good. Yes, that's exact. I mean, that sounds good in the ears of us 21st century Westerners, right? That's the problem with religion, and that's the problem with the institutions of law and moral code. That's the problem with people who try to tell you what to do and what's right and wrong and how you should live your life. We need to throw that off in order to be free. We're not under law. And in fact, there was some of that going on even in Paul's day, but most certainly that rings true in our day, right? We think, hey, all of those things, the moral code and the religious institutions that represent them and enforce them, all that's produced is self-righteousness and hypocritical people and people who heap shame and guilt on others and in fact um, destroy people and use their institutions and their power and the moral code to justify their own immorality or justify um, uh, you know, the injustices that they are perpetuating. That's the problem with, we need to get out from under the influence of the law. Fine, Paul says, but then you're going to be under a different influence. He calls it the influence of the self or the flesh. It sounds like freedom, right? To be un out from under the influence of the law and to be our own person and to decide for ourselves what's right. The problem is that being under the influence of the self is equally destructive and being under the influence of the law in a different way. Because the influence of the law, while it might produce self-righteousness, the influence of the flesh produces self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. And look at the result of self-centeredness. He says this in verse 15. Do not use your freedom to indulge or be under the influence of the flesh. He says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed. This is picture of wild animals sort of going at each other. And we can think, okay, in this church that he's writing to, they probably weren't cutting each other's flesh or like stabbing each other, or literally killing each other. But his point is, if you indulge, if you are under the influence of the flesh, ultimately it will affect and destroy your relationships. You'll both be destroyed with each other if you are under the influence of the flesh. <clears throat> and the, the, the self is really the flesh, the life according to us. And here's what the freedom mantra of life according to us and the flesh in our day sounds like. And tell me if you've heard this, perhaps you've said this. Do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone else. That is the freedom mantra of our day. Hey, be free. You decide. Don't let anyone tell you what to do or tell you who you can be or tell you what you should do with your life or tell you what you should do with your body or your sexual life or your money or your job or, or your time. But just don't. So do whatever you want. Just don't hurt anyone. It sounds good. The problem is that self-centeredness is just as destructive as self-righteousness. Think about it this way. If two people go into a marriage and primarily remain self-centered, each one is going to pursue their own interests ahead of the other person's interests, there's going to be a problem. And any of you that have been in a marriage like that, or you know you battle that, anyone who gets married battles that. Why? Because there are a thousand choices a year where you have to choose between your interests and your spouse's interests. If you both just decide we're going to pursue our careers as much as we can and advance as much as we can, and we're going to pursue our own hobbies as much as we can, and we're going to make sure we work out and exercise for ourselves as much as we can, and we're going to make sure we get to better ourselves, and I'm going to do my PhD, and I'm going to keep pursuing whatever I need to do in order to be happy, ultimately the marriage will disintegrate, whether actively through fighting and selfishness and whatever and breakup, or just a quiet agreement that each is going to do whatever they want to do 
if we have children, we're going to co-parent them together. But when they leave the house, we're going to look at each other and realize that our co-working job is over and we have nothing in common anymore. If you do whatever you want in your marriage, it will destroy your marriage. Likewise, in your workplace, if you just do whatever you want to do in your work, what that means is you're probably going to prioritize your work, your assignments, your projects, your project list. And if other people need your help, you're going to be less likely to help them or you're going to be begrudgingly helping them or you're going to be annoyed with them that they're not holding up their part of the project or they're not doing, you don't want them in your group for group work because they're just dragging you down. If you're primarily about your interest in the workplace, you're not going to be patient or kind or helpful with other people. In fact, you might even begin to compete with someone else who seems to be maybe getting ahead of you or going to get promoted ahead of you or going to get paid more than you or recognized more than you, and you're going to end up treating them or seeing them as a villain, an adversary, an enemy. If you do whatever you want to do in your workplace, it will destroy the relationships you have with the people you work for, the people you work with, and the people who work for you. If you do whatever you want, in your church or in your school, and you think, you know what, the friends that I want are the people I like, the people I like to talk to, the people who make me feel good, the people who I think are interesting, and the people who I want to hang around. If you do whatever you want in the area of your friendships, what that means is outsiders will continue to remain outsiders. And people who are new will not get connected. And people who are hurting and struggling and whose lives, in a sense, are hanging by a thread will not find any safe or helpful place to call home in your school or in your church. And if we continue to do whatever we want with our money and just spend it the way we think is best, the poor, hurting, and needy world that is all around us will continue to be poor and hurting and needy. I heard a stat the other day that if we converted all of the storage space that we use in North America to store our extra stuff, if we just took those roofs and that square footage, we could end the homelessness crisis in North America. <laughs> If that's not a picture of us just doing whatever we want with our own money, I don't know what is. Do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone sounds good. It's just not possible. To be under the influence of the flesh, right, is to become ultimately self-centered. And so Paul says, yes, you can choose to be under the influence of the law, but that will ultimately make you self-righteous. You can choose to be under the influence of the flesh. That will be ultimately make you self-centered. Instead, he said, invite a third influence into your life, the Spirit. See, under the influence of the law, you become self-righteous. Under the influence of the flesh, you become self-centered. Under the influence of the Spirit, you become selfless, <laughs> or in his language, more loving. Look what he says in verse 13, and he kind of sums up this whole thing. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And if you want to think about the law and not the flesh, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Ultimately, the commandments and the law were about what? Love your neighbor as yourself. His whole point is that the whole purpose of the law, if it has any value in your life, is to help you love others. The whole point of God's law, of the moral code and the commands, is to teach you to love others, to compel you to serve and care for others, to put others' interests ahead of yourself. And if you have freedom from the law, don't use that freedom to be under the influence of the flesh, because that just produces self-centeredness. No, use your freedom to choose to be under the influence of the Spirit that produces selflessness, love, 
in your life. In a sense, he's saying, hey, you're free to choose, to choose the influence that will make you into the person you really want to be. This is the freedom you have. You're not free from influence. You just get to choose what it will be. The law, the moral code, which ultimately will produce self-righteousness, if that's all you live by, if you don't let it turn you to love, because that's the whole point, or choose the flesh to live your own way, to say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do as long as it doesn't hurt other people, except that's not possible. And so you end up destroying your relationships, or you are free to choose to be influenced by the spirit that produces love. Now, love, a loving person, is the kind of person we actually all want to be. And in fact, in this passage, Paul goes on to list some of the sins or the ways of the flesh. And what's interesting about them, they cover the full gamut from like sexual sin to like envy and gossip. Every single one of them is about sin in relationships or how sin or the flesh destroys our relationships. So when we choose the spirit to become more and more loving, it will change us into a more loving person. The kind of person deep down we, we all want our spouse to be and our friends to be and our principal to be and our boss to be and our president to be and our prime minister and whoever. It's what we want other people to be and it's what other people want us to be and it's, it's who we really want to be deep down. But here's the problem. <laughs> when you invite the influence of the spirit into your life, when you say yes to Jesus, when you say yes to the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of you, you life is going to get more difficult. It's, you're going to make your life more difficult when you invite the Spirit in. Why? Because you are inviting in a battle, right? Before Jesus comes into your life, it's easy. You can just obey the flesh. You can just be under the influence of the flesh. You get to do whatever you want. And that's easy. You know why it's easy? Because you've been doing that your whole life. <laughs> Who taught you those words that came flying out of your mouth when you were one and a half or two? Maybe it was your first words. Mine. Who taught you that? Your parents were looking at you like, who taught them that? They're looking at each other. I didn't teach them that. Nobody did. It's been in you since you were born. The flesh, we have been under the influence of the flesh, the scriptures say, since we were born. That is the natural way of being. Sometimes Paul refers to our natural selves or our natural, that's the natural bent. It doesn't mean we're evil through and through. God created us all good and beautiful, but inside of us from the beginning, we have this influence of the flesh that very naturally moves us towards ourselves to be self-centered. Well, when you invite the spirit to come into your life, now the spirit is going to fight with the flesh for influence, for control. Look what Paul says in verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. In other words, there's a war inside now. Now that the spirit comes into your life, they are in conflict with each other, listen, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Now, this is an interesting sort of phrase of words. Another translation is, so that you don't do what you want to do. In other words, they're both fighting. Your desires are fighting with each other. So you have these desires that you want to just, um, you know, satisfy your own cravings. You don't want to delay your desires or whatever it is about sex or money or food or just serving yourself or being career ambition or whatever. You want to do that. That's what you want to do. But the spirit comes into your life and begins to say, mm, Maybe you shouldn't do that, or maybe you should wait to do that, or maybe you should go say sorry for that, or maybe you should rethink that, or maybe you should use your time or money to serve other people. So you want to do these other things, but the Spirit's not letting you do them because <laughs> it's fighting with your flesh. And you have these good desires, beautiful desires to love others, to care for others, to sacrifice to others, to say sorry, to, to, to do something kind, to, to, to use your life 
for good and purpose, to put others first, to delay gratification, to exercise self-control. Those are things you want to do, but your flesh is saying, you shouldn't do that. That's a dumb idea. Why are you doing that? Don't listen to them. Oh, don't you want to do this instead? <laughs> There's a war inside. It's a battle. When you invite the spirit into your life, the fight starts. I mean, hopefully that's encouraging for some of you when you feel this battle. Before you didn't feel a thing because it was just the flesh and you just did whatever you want. Or it was just the law and you didn't think and you just tried to obey. Once you invite the spirit in, man, there's a fight. The spirit is fighting with the flesh so that your desires are competing with each other. Do you ever feel that fight? Ah! <laughs> Who's going to rescue me? Even we read this week in, um, in our Bible reading a couple weeks ago in Romans 7, where Paul says, oh my gosh, I want to do what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do. And who's going to rescue me from this? What is the solution to this? He says in verse 16, well, the solution is just like alcohol. How does alcohol influence you? One drink at a time. <laughs> one drink at a time. One drink after another. And that's what he says in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit. It's a beautiful translation. Others say, keep in step with the Spirit. It's this idea of one step at a time. How does the Spirit influence you? How do you give the Spirit more influence in your life? One decision at a time. One decision after another. In a sense, every decision you make is giving either the flesh more influence in your life or giving the spirit more influence in your life. And if they're in a war with each other, every decision you make is giving one power over the other. Does that make sense? Because this battle going on, every decision I make, I'm either strengthening the spirit, I'm giving the spirit more room, more influence, I'm arming the spirit to, to defeat the flesh in me, or I'm strengthening and arming and powering up the flesh to defeat the spirit that's in me. Every single decision, one step at a time, one decision at a time, one drink at a time. Every time we choose, we're giving influence to one or the other. So here's what I wanted to do just for the rest of this message today is actually lead you in an exercise of something that has been an ancient practice of the church. It's confession. Confession. Now we think like, oh, confession, like that's, that's heavy. That feels like the law, right? You have to do this. Well, we know we're not under law. You don't have to confess. And, and you're not also under this, they're not a slave to your flesh. You just have to do whatever you want to do. I can freely choose to acknowledge things in me that weren't good. I can freely choose to confess, to change my mind, to repent, to say sorry. Confession is this beautiful exercise of your freedom. And it's both ways. It's saying, here's why what I, what I, I need to reflect on where I've missed, where I have not done what I've meant to do or where I should have done something and I didn't but also confessing, saying, this is what I want to choose instead. Confession is, the, is, is a choice in and of itself to give the spirit more power in the battle inside you with the flesh. And here's, can I suggest this? You can do this even if you're not a follower of Jesus. Even if you're not sure yet. Even, confession has a powerful, beautiful, freeing effect and influence in our lives. And so here's what I want to do. I'm just going to lead you in this slowly. So just, just kind of, we're, we're going to take our time with this. We're not going to rush through this. And you don't have to do this. You're not under law. But man, what a gift. What an opportunity to give the Spirit more influence in our lives. And so here's what I want you to do. Just take a moment and breathe in. And kind of think of yourself as breathing in the Spirit. 
right? God is not this sort of angry lawmaker standing outside of us wagging his finger. He is close to us. He's as close to us as our breath. He is the one on the inside of us helping us. So breathe in and, and make your body and mind aware that the Spirit is in you. And just breathe out any cares or stress or anxiety or distraction. God is as close to you as your very breath. Now I want to just lead you through a process of confession. First, I want to invite you to think about and confess any way that you've become self-righteous. And if I can be maybe more specific, who is someone that I have judged or looked down on or insisted on being right with? Right? That, that's sometimes what self-righteousness produces in us. Who is someone that I've judged or looked down on or insisted on being right with? Just take a moment and think about that. Confession is just about bringing that person or that situation to mind. And just confessing it to God. Say, God, I don't want to be under the influence of the law which can make me self-righteous. Make me unloving. Just take a moment to confess that. Secondly, I want to give you a chance to confess any way that you've become self-centered or selfish in, in a couple of areas, with, with my desires, my time, or my money. To confess any ways that I've become self-centered or selfish with my desires, my time, and my money. And there's just a few that come to mind. There may be other ones, but there were just three that I wanted to suggest here. Perhaps we become selfish with our desires in terms of lust. And that could be just looking at another person inappropriately or thinking about someone else that if you're married, that you're not married to. It could be uh, pornography. It just could be what you scroll through on Instagram. And, and lust is selfish because it uses somebody else for your own pleasure. That, that's why it's destructive. <laughs> it's treating someone else as an object. They say that even chemically or in our brain, the part of our brain that gets activated when we're using pornography is the part that deals with objects. We're objectifying people. And so Lust, confessing lust is just saying, ah, oh, I've been selfish with my desires. I'm using someone else for my own pleasure. And so maybe that's something you just need to confess to God. Or perhaps you've been selfish with your time in terms of busyness. Like your life is full of all of the things you've decided to do, which leaves you not enough time or mental or emotional capacity for others. People who need your time or requests for time or opportunities to serve or to care for others, or you've ignored phone calls or emails or texts or invitations to serve because you're just too busy. Or maybe you've been selfish with your money. And that, that could be like too much saving, like saving's good, but you've got a lot saved. 
maybe it's kept you from being generous or too much debt because you've spent and extended yourself for yourself. And so therefore you're unable to give. And that may be just something we need to confess. Not being generous with others, thinking primarily about money for ourselves. If there's something else that's come up, you can just take a moment to confess that. In a sense, that's us trying to break the power, the influence of just a law-driven life or a self-driven life to confess any ways we've been self-righteous or self-centered. And now I want you to invite, invite you to consider making a choice, right? If, if the Spirit gets more and more influence in our lives, one decision at a time, what small choice can I give can I make to give the Spirit more influence in this area, in any one of the areas you confess? And here's just a, a suggestion for each of the areas you might have confessed. And, and probably for all of us, just one of these that's in particular. Don't worry about a long list. Usually the Spirit is specific, putting his finger on one thing. Maybe for you that step is to pray for someone instead of judging or arguing with them. Right? If it's someone you've been in conflict with, you're frustrated with, you've been arguing with, to just begin to pray for them. That's a small choice, but it gives the spirit more influence. It arms the spirit to defeat the flesh inside you. Perhaps you need to make a step and even text someone right now to apologize to them. Or if it's going to be a longer conversation, just send them a text saying, hey, I'd love to chat with you. It's something we need to apologize for. Or perhaps it's something we need to repent of to someone else about something we've hidden. It may not be an offense against them, but we've been fighting it or hiding it ourselves and we need help. You know, we've given in, we've been selfish with our desires or whatever it is, and we just need to confess that or repent to someone else. So that's a small step. So you may want to text someone and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. Or hey, can you remind me to ask me about something I thought of on Sunday at church? Right, just a moment, or if you're watching this online or listening in your car, just take a moment. Who do you need to repent to just to help get someone else's help with this? Perhaps for some of us who've been selfish with our time or our friendship or our love, we need to make a decision to seek out someone, to pursue them, to show an interest in them, to give them time, to actively reach out. Or if we've been selfish with our money, too much saving or too much debt. What do you, what can you give to someone? And maybe something you were going to give to yourself, right? Even if it's just a coffee or whatever, like sometimes we're in debt and we're like, oh, I'm not giving away tons of money. Yeah, but what were you going to spend on yourself tomorrow or next week that maybe you could give to someone else? Friends, these are all small steps, right? It would be nice maybe if the Spirit just came in and possessed us and we never thought a bad thought again and we always did what was right. That's not how it works. We're not robots. God has made us free. But we are free to choose one decision after another that gives the Spirit more and more power to win the battle on the inside of us. You know what's beautiful about confession? Confession isn't the law, isn't the saying you have to, right? We're not under law. We already read that. Confession is actually an invitation for the Spirit whose name is Helper. That's the name given to the Holy Spirit in Scripture. 
helper. It's like God saying, hey, I know the person deep down you want to be. I know the person I created you to be. I know the person your spouse or your friends or your coworkers, whatever, need you to be, and I will help you become that person. <laughs> this isn't up to us by our own power. We get to invite the Spirit to help us. We're going to close today, and one of the parts of the song we're singing is a chorus we've sung many times from a song called, Lord, I Need You. I need you. And I hope that you've become maybe just aware of like, yeah, I need God in this. I need freedom from self-righteousness or I need freedom from self-centeredness. I need freedom to choose more of the things that will allow the spirit more influence in my life. So Lord, help me. And so maybe as you're singing this song, think about it. You're singing to the Holy Spirit. This is a song to the Holy Spirit. Lord, I need you. You are the helper. Come into my life. Influence me more and more. Lord, I come. I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you.
just then, oh God, how I need.